Your music maestro, Jim Bennett, will be here with you on New Year's Eve. That's right. Special programming here on 94.1 KPFA. It's 3.30 p.m. Cover to Cover is up next with Jennifer Stone. On today's edition of Stone's Throw, we'll hear Jennifer reading the first chapter of her novel, Sophia, Last of the Wise. Jennifer is in Texas with her two sons and returns to these airwaves live and in person in January of next year. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is. Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today I have for you a fable for our times. It's titled Sophia, Last of the Wise. It was first published in Stone Shoes a few years ago. And I think I have just time to read it. The first chapter of the novel, Sophia... Last of the Wise Once upon a time, in the land of the lost, lived a woman who knew too much. In times past, her name was Sophia. It remains so to this day. Sophia is a closet introvert. This year she is coming out. In order to come out and go in, she must find closets far away from home. At home, she sits on the sofa and talks to everyone just as her mother did and her mother's mother and all those loving women who hang around their sofas and keep warm. I don't think it's wise to be so warm, said Sophia softly one day to her sister, Maria, who was the warmest woman in the family. Maria and Sophia, her twin sister, are so close. Sophia often hears her sister's voice when Maria is not there. Maria, on the other hand, seldom hears the words of Sophia even when Sophia is with her. Nevertheless, she is always, always very warm. This time she smiles and answers, Take a walk, Sophia, take a damn long walk, so I can get the house clean for the holy days. 
so I can wash the dog, comb the cat, get some seeds sown around here. Yes, says Sophia, I'll go. I'll go and I'll come back. Fine, says Maria, why not look for a man while you're out there? A man who chops wood so we can keep warm in the winter. Is that wise, Sophia asks, to look for love and wisdom on the same trip? Ah, tell it to the Marines, said Maria. And she went back to bed to keep warm. Sophia got up late that night and left home to be alone. She went to a motor inn and turned the key in the lock. Alone with the Gideon Bible, she browses through Revelation. At home, she would have consulted the I Ching, which always lay on the table next to the sofa. The ancient East nearly always answered her mood, if not her question. The apocalypse, on the other hand, leaves no room for maneuvering, no ambiguity there, just the Big Bang. She considers whether or not she feels like sticking around for... Doomsday, it seemed a long time coming. Of course, the prophets may have been speaking metaphorically, in which case every dawn is doomsday. In fact, the old alcoholic who had given her the key to her room looked a bit like the angel with the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, for poet prophets who tend to look on the dark side, he might symbolize doom, while actually being only an old guy on his way out. Sophia pours herself a little brandy. She contemplates the formica sink, the green painted walls, the tacky textures of the fixtures, and the sad still life framed over her bed. Now, over her bed at home is an opulent oil painting of a medieval banquet which her sister Maria placed there. Maria had made Sophia's room a grotto of stone with hanging gardens, Baroque paintings, Byzantine icons, pre-Raphaelite light it won't do, Sophia said to herself. I've got to get somewhere, and soon. Remember what Jimmy Joyce said, an Irishman's home is his coffin. Sophia gets in bed with the Bible and the brandy, reading on in Revelation to the opening of the seventh seal, and the terrible terminal thunder, Sophia decides that this is no book for a woman to say nothing of an existential Irish woman out on a limb. She takes a burgundy felt pen from her overnight bag and writes on the blank page of the Bible provided by the guys from the Gideon Society, quote, Existentialists, wrote the Irish philosopher Arland Usher, 
existentialists have a notable difficulty in finishing their books of necessity, for their philosophy, staying close to the movement of life, can have no finality. Signed yours truly, Sophia Strange. The brandy wakes her up. At 4 a.m., she finds a Denny's fast food restaurant. She heaps marmalade on an English muffin, watching the local pimps make their last roundup, collecting the wages of sin from pubescent girls with Novocaine eyes. Sex and the single soul, the modern cross of mind-body despair. Prostitution, she thinks to herself. That's a genuine out-of-body experience. Before Maria got religion, she was a prostitute. No one else in the family ever got wise to it. The family lost its race memory sometime in the early 19th century. Maria once told Sophia that prostitutes are like old-time Christians. They mortify the flesh. Only these days it goes deeper. They deny the flesh absolutely. <laughs> yes, a tower of denial. <sighs> they sell it, they rent it, corrupt it with disease, but... Not for their soul's sake, only for enough cash to eat at Denny's. Sophia checks out of the motel at noon. She's in a hurry, driving her old Chevy Nova along the California coast. She thinks about money, and she thinks about men, the men in whom women find favor, and the money which men give so that children may live. Sophia even remembers that she has children somewhere, but they have nice sofas, like Maria's, and they don't eat at Denny's, so she puts them out of her mind and her heart until Christmas or anyway Easter. Sophia drives till the moonlight shines on the sea, trying not to wonder just where she's going. It's the journey that counts, she recites grimly to herself, stopping the car, watching the wild white waves break over the rocks. She lets a few tears fall, murmuring, Oh, if they'd only given me a useful little job of some kind, social work perhaps, something that counts, that adds up to a life, then I wouldn't have to drive around like this. Soon the lights of a seaside bar, Neptune's trident, draw her into the fishy cavern of a small restaurant. She orders fish and chips and stares at the green-gray light of the moon on the water. A barrel-chested giant leans gently in her direction, asks what she's drinking, buys it, and finishes off her fish and chips. They sit by the fireplace 
under the buoy balls, slung in the nets, drinking bourbon and talking about time. He gives her a grand fish story. With only one wife and two mermaids in it, he has a picture of the littlest mermaid, his daughter Thumbelina. The pictures in his wallet, it seems Thumb ran away with a sailor this time last year, so he stays on here, here at Neptune's trident, hoping she'll come back one of these days. Sophia feels how warm this man is, if a bit lugubrious. She spends the night with him on his boat, and the next day she's still there. He putters while Sophia sits in the sun. He's in dock for a few days to mend nets. Before he wanders down the wharf to buy supper, uh, he holds Sophia by the shoulders and asks her if she'll be there when he gets back. She's there. This is the warmest it gets, Sophia says to herself, oysters and orgasms here on the beach, on the sand in the moonlight. A great heavy man who makes love like a hummingbird, a man from the old time, from the ancient regime, a man who doesn't have to ask you how you like it and do you resent it and whose turn is it and was it all right? For Sophia, scoring is a sort of trinity, a trinity of mind, body, and heart. Two out of three will do. This time she's found a body with a heart, and he does very well. Young men are so green, she tells herself. Self-conscious as women, some of them. The now crowd, the urban mod squad, she calls them. Well-dressed, self-obsessed, counting their orgasms. Maintaining their goals. This, Sophia tells herself, as she holds on to her whale of a fisherman in the dark. This is the real stuff. The ocean rises and falls beneath them like a pulp novel. Waves rocking them in bed like kids in a cradle. Way to go, says Sylvia to herself. Sophia, oh, says to the fisherman the raunchy things that turn him on. Then comes the big one, the Wagnerian orgasm Sophia saves for the full moon, or for special men like this old Neptune with scars on both his arms, a finger missing, and a hard light in his left eye. Old Neptune puts his hand just at the base of her spine, as the last rivers of light leave her skin and float to the ceiling of the little cabin. She shudders softly and curls into post-coital comfort, neurons smiling, toes tingling. Her spine sighs as his hand scratches her lower chakras and rests heavily on her hip. She rocks still, like a ship settling, rolling into his arms, moored against his chest for the night. He strokes her hair, holding one black frond in his mouth and nibbling it with his canines. Sophia sleeps. She dreams of a lover long gone, 
of a Siegfried who rode off with her soul, leaving her with only Wagnerian orgasms, more than a fair exchange, he would have said, It's an old dream. Sophia tries to follow it to the end, which she never remembers. She dreams the dream is coming, and it does. She is warm in bed with love, with Eros, with Cupid himself, but since she is not awake, she tells him so. She tells him he is a god with feathers, and she loves him. He is soft in speaking as only a man can speak. Finally sighing, he says that while it is not his wish, sweet, sweet psyche, some things are just so, there's no way to alter the whims of the gods. Then he is dressed in a velvet robe and sitting there, there where he says he is not living anymore, in this place, which is not his home, yet he is the owner of this place, of this land, of this castle. The gates are made of his iron whims. His cars are parked in all the driveways. It is lonely here for Psyche, all alone with him. Next, she can see the edge of the hill and then over the hill in the dying ground where the multitudes walk into the sea, drowning there in the sea to make room for so many, so many more, pushed into the cold black water. Sophia wakes laughing. <laughs> the fisherman nudges his way into her armpit, wrapping a great arm around her waist. She sinks back into her dream, into the chaotic chambers of her brain, where the pictures are seen from behind and the frames are fragments of medieval tapestries, or the wallpaper from her old dollhouse, or those ads on the sides of city buses. There he is once more, Eros of the dream, the love of loves, with his green-gray serpent's curled in his moonlit gardens, a nighttime picture of his baby lies on the back seat of his car. So thoughtful are the eyes of his baby, nothing says what it is, a male or no. No, only a baby inside his car softly. He's glad to have the baby lying on the leather seat of his car, but he will not say it is his own. Psyche reaches to turn on the little light in his car. Her hand brushes the baby. The baby cries out. Eros drives away. The car is gone. There is no light, no light, and labor lost. Psyche searches for a light switch. As she and Eros go alone through so many rooms, floating past people, music there deep in the labyrinth, makes a cocteau kind of movie as they watch each other, watch each other, wanting images of emotions, and there is the lumber of their bodies with thighs crossed, the willowing of her limbs as she threads her thoughts round and round him. On the great cross of his shoulders, she climbs to Calvary, hangs crucified at last, 
asleep and at home in her final resting place. Mother, she murmurs, Mother, forgive them, for they know not what they know not. Waking, she laughs. Mother, she says, forgive them, for they know damn well what they do, giggling to herself. She wakes and slides out of psyche and back into herself. Slowly, asking her dream why, half forgetting what. Sophia's head is heavy on old Neptune's breast. He snores gently. Forgive me, Psyche whispers. For some reason which she does not know, Eros has always forgiven her even when she wakes him with the nightlight. Sophia stretches out her arm and covers old Neptune with the heavy blanket. She looks at him a long time in the light of the moon, and then she sits up abruptly, reaches for the bottle by the bed, the bottle of Jack Daniels he brought home the night before. Sitting on the edge of his bunk, she takes a swallow, looking down at her wet thighs, Forgive me, she gulps. Forgive me for what? On the road again, late the next afternoon, Sophia considers whether Maria might like old Neptune. Of course, he's only a myth like the rest of us. Waiting for his daughter, for Thumbelina to wash up on the beach some night, her nymphic form lashed to the mast like the girl in the wreck of the Hesperus. Same old phallic prophecy. On the other hand, maybe he loves her. That, too, may be true. Sophia wonders if she should have hung around long enough to find out. She loved the smell of his tobacco, all the smells and swells of his body, she even cared enough to lie to him when she was leaving. Some trouble about my kid, she told him. He's out in Hollywood trying to become a harlot. Got to go to Hollywood to save his soul. Old Neptune liked her for the lie. It was one he might have chosen himself. Of course, he sighed and hugged her. I don't approve of harlots either. <laughs> Remember, he said, I'm always here whenever you get cold. La Jolla, the jewel of Southern California, sparkles with pearly green lights as Sophia drives down the hill past weaving palms to her favorite cove, the beach of her childhood. The streets seem sad as the sun sets, the sea is hushed withdrawn from the land, wanting only to get away from the people, get away from the lighted town. All through the night she mourns old Neptune. She is aching in a big dry bed in an antique hotel, haunted by the empty eyes of a blue-haired old woman who gave her keys and a towel and wrote down the checkout time on a slip of paper. Someday... When my hair, too, is blue, sighs Sophia, I'll be sorry I didn't stay warm. 
With the first light, Sophia is down on the beach, the beach called Whispering Sands. She looks for the natural rock bridges, the caves where she played as a child. They are gone now. The beach has been developed. She digs in her backpack for her abalone earrings, two tiny shells found on this beach when she was nine. Most of the abalone is gone now, too, along with the beach. She slips the silver hooks through her earlobes. A nice young man will ask, What sort of shell is that? And reach out his hand to examine them, and he will look, and she will keep warm. She digs her toes into the sand, the squeaky sand that whispers. Remembering the young men in the past who went out with their abalone irons and brought back the great snails. The shells grown to soup bowl size, piling them on the rocks, telling her to clean and cook them. In the past, she cut away the black tendrils and the snail parts, saving only the pristine white centers, pounding these to tender fillets feeding everyone who came to their beach house. That house stands empty and rusty now, alone in the scrub. The stepping stones lead past the cypress and down to the beach grown over with ice plant. She shuts her eyes to bring back the little girl of ten, the girl who woke with the gulls and put on her sandals crept over the boards of the porch which stood on stilts over the sea, scrambled down the stone steps, across the sand to tide pools and salt water. Sophia looks up to see a ponderous middle-aged male in full tourist gear with camera. <laughs> uh, he asks her if she doesn't think the cowrie shell he's holding in his hand resembles the female genital. Oh, yes, indeed, she replies. That's why certain Pacific Islanders use them to cover the eyes of the dead. She walks away, wondering why she hadn't thought to pick up the bulb of kelp lying at his feet. Wave that in his face, always too late. What the French call the wit of the staircase, or what, what one should have said if one hadn't fallen over one's feet. Her wits overgrown with weeds, Sophia trips on the stairs which lead to her old beach house. She falls down in the sea-bitten abalone garden of the child of ten. This old place has secrets. It's easy to remember the scruffy living, the rats in the basement, fleas in the rug, bonfires on the beach at night. She would rather not remember the alcoholism, the violence, the psychosexual trauma that still darken her dreams. What the hell am I doing here, she says out loud. I might as well be at home with Maria. Maria had been happy in this old house. Maria had more fun in the old days, in some golden age of her imagination, some Charlie Dickens tale of hearth and hypocritical happiness. Childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies. Sophia considers whether it's time to write Maria about the past, about the way the past accumulates and piles up until you have to leave town. Well, Maria never reads the mail, so there would be no answer. Now I have to 
stop this chapter. There's only a little bit more left. Uh, it winds up with Walt Whitman. Uh, and, uh, yes, Walt Whitman and a starfish. I've been reading to you from a fable called Sophia, the Last of the Wise. That was the first chapter, first published in uh, Stone Shoes a few years ago. Uh, the author is Jennifer Stone, and this has been Jennifer Stone reading to you till Thursday morning at 8.20. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. You've been listening to Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone, our Tuesday host who returns next week at this time here on 94.1 KPFA, 88.1 in the Central Valley. KPFA's weekday program on book talk can be heard weekdays at 3.30 p.m. Tomorrow, Jack Foley joins us on Cover to Cover with a look at the personal creative work of Dana Joya, chair of the National Endowment of the Arts. Stay tuned for Hard Knock Radio on this station Woo! here. This is Caroline Casey, weaver of Context for the Visionary Activist Show, a show that aspires to wed spiritual magic and conscious, compassionate social activism. Join us every Thursday at 2 p.m. as we invoke and implement a more ingeniously cooperative and reverent world.